Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. So about a week ago, I'm driving home from work, and I'm listening to the radio, and a woman comes on and tells a story. She says, reflecting back on some years past, I was eight and a half months pregnant, she says. I was a military wife, and so we... A friend of mine and I were driving around the military base looking at the housing, especially looking at the housing for generals and other officers. And we're thinking, wow, they have heat. (laughs) They have air conditioning. They have a lot more than we have. So she said, we're talking about this. We pull up to a red light. We stop. And a car pulls up beside us, windows down. We had our windows down. And the guy in the window near to me looks over and catches my eye. And he says to me, where have you been all my life? So she said, I shot my friend to watch this look. And I opened the door and I got out, eight and a half months pregnant, and waddled over toward him and started screaming at him. Where have you been the last eight and a half months? I've been looking for you everywhere. Where have you been? And she said, he slunk back. His eyes got that big. His friend was trying to almost get out of the car. He says, dude, do you know her? (laughs) I think I laughed the whole way home. She ended the story by saying, I don't think he's ever going to do that again. (laughs) But it underlined for me just how challenging it is in our world, not only to meet people, but then to decide, is this a person I ought to spend my life with? or not? Is this the person that is meant for me? So as you know, in this series, we've been going back to the classroom, and we've been kind of talking about such things in a series called Covenant. You'll remember the conversations about covenant and contract. You'll also remember, maybe, that when we talked about this a few weeks ago, I suggested to you that when it comes to a dating relationship, It should remain contractual for a period of time as you assess the health of the relationship. So we want to come back to that today and talk about that assessment because the truth is, in the church, when we have done series or done studies or written books about family relationships, we have too often left out two critical realities, one that we'll deal with this week and one we'll deal with next week, and that is the process of choosing a spouse and singleness. So we're going to look at those two realities today and next week. So the question is pretty simple. The question is, when I am assessing whether or not this contractual dating relationship ought to grow in the direction of a covenantal permanent relationship, how do we do that? What do we look for? What do we ask? 
So I kind of borrowed and adapted the title for this lesson from a book written by Beth Bailey uh, called From Front, Port, From Front Porch to Back Seat, Courtship in 20th Century America. And her goal is to write about the history of courtship over the last century. What happened during that time? What she writes on the back dust jacket kind of symbolizes what happened. So listen to this. One day, the 1920s story goes, a young man asked a city girl if he might call on her. We know nothing else about the man or the girl, only that when he arrived, she had her hat on. Not much of a story to us. But any American born before 1910 would have gotten the punchline. She had her hat on. Those five words were rich in meaning to early 20th century Americans. The hat signaled that she expected to leave the house. He came on a call expecting to be received in her family's parlor to talk, to meet her mother, perhaps to have some refreshments or listen to her play the piano. She expected to be taken on a date, to be taken out somewhere and entertained. He ended up spending four weeks' savings fulfilling her expectations. It's a curious story that reflects some of the differing expectations and understandings and also reflects how far we've come from that. So how do we assess it? How do we know? So we turn to this book. And we start looking for ways from this book to know, is the person I'm dating really the best one for me? Am I the best one for him, for her? And you know what we find? We find, wow, there aren't too many examples of that in here either. In fact, if I'm to go by this, maybe I need to start praying that she'll water my camels. <laughs> and that's the way that I'll know. And that doesn't pan out too well. So is there wisdom, biblical wisdom, that would help us and that would guide us whenever we, speaking collectively, any of us among us, might be at that place. And I think there is. And for that, we're going to go to the book of Proverbs. Now, I quickly remind you, we've spoken of this on different occasions before, I quickly remind you that the book of Proverbs is made up of what? Proverbs. In other words, it's not made up of promises or guarantees, or the ironclad warranties of God. It's made up of Proverbs, divinely inspired Proverbs that say, when you use divine wisdom to live your life in a certain way, to make certain kinds of choices, this is the way then life tends to go. They're Proverbs that give us wisdom. So we're going to look at five Proverbs today. And I want to tell you going in, these are not written specifically to dating because that did not exist in their world and time. But they do contain wisdom that can be applied in a wide range of ways, but certainly to a dating relationship. Now, we're going to be, like I mentioned a week or two ago, we're going to be on a bus tour. The first three, we're just going to slow the bus down and take a, a brief look and move on. And the last two, we're going to stop and get off the bus and talk a little bit more about them. So the first one, the first Proverbs, is Proverbs 14, 15. Listen to these words. Only simpletons believe everything they're told. The prudent 
carefully consider their steps. Or, as Eugene Peterson rendered it in the message, the gullible believe anything they're told, the prudent sift and weigh every word. So what the wise man is talking about here in this context is making sound judgments by knowing exactly what it is that you're dealing with. How did Peterson put it? The gullible believe anything, but the prudent, that is the wise, sift every word, examine it carefully, seek to understand it, and what's behind it. That's what we need. So how might this apply to a dating relationship? I would suggest in this way. If you're a person, student here, resident, or just someone else who's dating someone, and you're trying to make those assessments, don't pay that much attention to what they say. Pay a whole lot of attention to what they do. Don't give that much attention to the words. Give a great deal of attention to the actions because that will tell you much more about them. Because of the simple reason that our process that we call dating in the Western world these days is based on putting your best foot forward, right? You want to look the best, be the best, be the most attractive, all the rest. I'm not saying there's something necessarily wrong with that. What I am saying is you can't fully trust that to make a lifelong decision. So instead of just listening to what they're saying, watch what they do. That will tell you much more. Which means in a person's dating life, if you're serious about moving in a certain direction, don't major in the Broadway musicals and the fine restaurants. I'm not against those. I'm just saying that's not the place to figure out who they are. Instead, major in moments and experiences that show you who they are by what they do. So you really want to know who they are? Clean out the garage together. That'll tell you something. Have the flu together. That'll tell you something. Have them over to your house when your whole family is there, including your nosy aunt and your weird uncle. Have them and see how they deal with that situation. If you want to make sound judgments, pay much more attention to what they do than to what they say. So we pause briefly on the bus. We're moving on to the next proverb. This one, Proverbs 27, 17. You know this proverb. This is one we've read probably on many occasions. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So isn't this talking about mutual growth? Now you say to me, wait a minute, as iron sharpens iron, aren't there a lot of sparks flying? Yes, there will be sparks at times, no question. I'm less concerned about the sparks than I am about the answer to this question, which is, I think, the key question here. Are you better people because you're together? Is there mutual growth? Can you say, in my relationship with this individual, I've matured? Can they, can they say that about you? Because the truth is, anybody who has spent any time on a college, university, even an academy campus, will tell you there are couples on that campus that when you look at them, you can tell they're not right for each other. They walk around like they're both trudging toward an execution. It's like, what's going on in this relationship? 
always fighting, always unhappy. I remember a guy, a really good friend of mine, I went to college with. He was dating this, this woman, and it wasn't a good relationship. It was not going well, but, but he just couldn't bring himself to break up with her. She was, he was afraid she was going to fall all to pieces. and it, it wasn't good, but he couldn't end it. So I'm sitting out in my car one evening in front of the girl's dorm, and I see him come bounding down the steps. And he gets to the bottom, he jumps up, he does a fist pump, and then he races toward his car. And I'm thinking, this guy win the lottery? So I jump out and chase him down. I say, what happened? He said, she broke up with me. (laughs) Probably not a good relationship. So the question is, do we make each other better people? I couldn't remember the name of the movie. Somebody told it to me after first service. It's... I'm not recommending it. I'm not attacking it. I honestly don't remember the movie except for one line decades ago. name of the movie is As Good As It Gets. So don't go home and watch say, Randy recommended that. I'm not recommending it. But what I am saying, there was one line in there that caught my attention. You know, Hollywood lines are kind of syrupy and all that. I don't know. This is a pretty powerful line. He looks. It was Jack Nicholson. Is that right? Jack Nicholson. Doug would know. Uh, it <laughs> Sorry, Doug. Jack Nicholson looks at Helen Hunt. I remember that one, Doug. Looks at Helen Hunt, and he says to her, he's interested in her. He says to her, you make me want to be a better man. (laughs) And I thought, man, why didn't I think of that? I mean, what a line. You make me want to be a better man. That's what this is talking about. Are you a better person because you're together? So the bus picks up speed again as we go to our third proverb. I love this proverb. I'm curious if you've ever read this proverb. You probably have. I don't know if it sticks out to you, but I think it's a beautiful proverb. Here's what it says, Proverbs 24, 26. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Isn't that good? An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Wow. In other words, what the writer here is driving at is, if we apply it to dating relationships, is honest lives. In other words, are you able to speak the truth in your relationship, to be honest about who you are? Remember that simple principle, we feel love to the degree to to which we are known. If we are not known, even when a person says, I love you, we in our minds are thinking, yes, but if you knew blank, fill in the blank, then would you say that? We feel love to the degree that we are known. So if we are honest, if we are able to be real and true about who we are, that's the fertile soil in which love can truly take root and grow. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. I can tell you with my beloved Anita, when we were dating, The point at which I begin to think this definitely has a future. If by the grace and mercy of God, she's thinking the same thing. (laughs) And it was when I began to open up to her in a way I'd never opened up to anyone else. Not a friend, not anyone I had dated in the past, but truly saying, this is who I am. And then waiting. And she didn't run screaming from the room. Instead, she embraced me. And I think it was at that moment that I said, okay, this, I hope, (laughs) has a future, a permanent future. 
Because there's something about that kind of candor and honesty when it is reciprocated with love that cannot be matched. So my question, if you're a dating person, you're trying to assess should this move from a contractual relationship to a covenantal one, would be to say, are you using sound judgment? Watch what they do, not just what they say. Is there mutual growth? Are you a better person because you're with them? Honest lives, are you able to be truthful and still grow together? Now, the bus is moving on to two more Proverbs, but this time we'll stop just a little bit. The fourth one, Proverbs 14.30. This is from the message paraphrase of the Bible. A sound mind makes for a robust body. Okay, so Solomon, or the writer here, is talking about the mind-body connection, something we would talk about much, much more in our day and time. But he's talking about it very well. A sound mind makes for a robust body, but runaway emotions corrode the bones. Runaway emotions corrode the bones. So it seems to me that what he's driving at is we want to have balanced emotions, certainly in our lives as a whole, but in this case, more specifically, in dating. Balanced emotions. Because if the emotions get out of whack, it will, in that lingo, corrode the bones. It will damage what it is supposed to strengthen. So I want to use a model that's been around a while to talk about this one. It was originally developed by Robert Sternberg. It's been called the Triangular Theory of Love. Now, I'll give you the basic outline that Sternberg used, but there are some changes in this one based on other readings and my own thinking and so forth, so don't hold Sternberg responsible for all of this if it doesn't make sense. So, the Triangular Theory of Love. In essence, it says, the best kind of married love is made up of three elements, three components. Now, if we know that, then does it not stand to reason that when I am moving toward a potential marriage, I ought to be asking, are these three elements present in the relationship? Are they there in a balanced way? So, triangular theory of love says the first one is something that Sternberg called intimacy. Intimacy. Now, when we read that word intimacy, we tend to think of sexual intimacy. That's not what Sternberg was driving at. In this case, what he's driving at is emotional intimacy, friendship intimacy. We like each other intimacy. If you go to the Greek New Testament, there's a word in the Greek that we pronounce philos that gets translated love in the New Testament. And it describes this quality, this caliber of relationship. We like each other. Now, just think about your platonic friends, how you make them and how the friendship is characterized. We most often make our platonic friends because we have a lot in common with them. We work at the same place. We live in the same neighborhood. We go to the same church. Uh, we like the same sports, all kinds of things that tend to line up because we're similar in those ways. However, when it comes to love interest, that's not always the case. You know the quintessential scene. He looks and sees her across a crowded room, their eyes lock, and they just 
No. That's a formula for disaster. But that's how it tends to happen. Sternberg is saying these two people are friends. They like each other. I thought over the years at, at weddings, when we, when we read the vows and they say, I do and I do, making a commitment to love this person for the remainder of their lives, that's a good thing. I, I understand that. But I've almost wondered, should we make them, pardon me, should we offer them the opportunity to make a commitment to like each other rather than to love each other? Or at least along with loving each other. Because anybody here who is married knows that there are times when it's a lot easier to love them than it is to like them. Can I get a witness besides Doug? <laughs> I'm a witness to that. And so we want to know we have a friendship together. So the way I would ask a person, young person or older person, to, to test that would be to say, suppose you were given the assignment to spend a day with a platonic friend, doing whatever you want to do, go to the mountains, to the beach, to the desert, whatever, but you have to be with a friend. This is not a person with whom you have a romantic entanglement. So think now about that person that you're romantically interested in and try, insofar as you can, to take the romantic element out of it, the chemistry that you feel out of it, and just leave the person that they are. Thinking about that person, who they are, what they like, how they act, how they laugh, what they eat, everything about that person, would that person be one or two or three on the list? Would they be in your top ten? Would they make the list? <laughs> Ask yourself that question. It's a key question. Do I like her? Do I like him? Philos, intimacy. Sternberg says it's one of the elements in the best kind of married love. But he doesn't stop there. On this side of the triangle, he says, is passion. Now here with passion, he is talking about sexual chemistry, attraction, and attractiveness. Now in the world of Paul's day, there was a word that appeared in secular Greek. The word was eros that also got translated love that does speak of this element of the best kind of married love. There is chemistry. You're attracted to each other. You desire each other. Now, because our culture has so dramatically emphasized this, the church has tended to respond by de-emphasizing it and by at times almost making it seem like if you're asking that question, you're not spiritual. This was communicated to me and to my generation, I think, in our growing up years when the church had primarily one thing to say about sex and it could be summarized in one word and that word was don't. Don't. Don't think about it. Don't talk about it. Don't do it. Don't. It didn't work. <laughs> but it did send a message that says something is wrong if you have that kind of desire. Something is not wrong. That's how God created us. In fact, some of you will remember this few years ago, camp meeting. I did a series on the Song of Solomon. Song of Songs. You remember that? I cannot tell you how many times in that series as I was preparing for the sermon that week, I thought, what in the world got into me to preach on this book? 
this is unbelievable. Because as I'm trying to sort through all the metaphors and the images, you know, when you read them just straight out of the Bible, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. I mean, if you try that on your loved one, it doesn't even work. You know, husband, go home and say to your wife, your hair is like a flock of goats coming down Mount Gilead. <laughs> and she's like, no, 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 that's a compliment. <laughs> it's right here in the Bible. It's in the text. <laughs> it doesn't translate. It doesn't go well. But when I started studying it and started getting through the metaphors, I thought, oh, my goodness, I can't see that. Okay, how about that? Oh, I can't preach on that. Okay, what about... And pretty soon I'm saying, what possessed me to preach on this? Because it's a book that underlines the importance of this facet of humanity in our intimate, lifelong relationships. The fact that he had 999 other wives, don't think about that part. Just put that out of the way and think about this one. It's just you and me, baby, and this candle. Don't think about those others back there. But he had good wisdom. In fact, some scholars think that Solomon wrote the Song of Songs at the end of his life, reflecting back on what love could have been. And in that sense, it's a powerful statement about the presence of passion, attraction. So again, balanced, balanced. So think about it this way. Let's say... This is just an illustration, and this is a more generous illustration than some of the literature would indicate. But let's say that you're married, and you're, you and your husband, you and your wife, spend two hours a week, two full hours, in lovemaking. Some of you are thinking, oh, God, please. <laughs> thinking, wow. Okay, that's more generous than the literature quite significantly would indicate. But let's just say that, okay, two hours. You have exactly 166 other hours to be with that person and decide, do I like you? Think about that. Now you say, well, a third of that's sleeping, all right. A third of that's at work, all right. But you still got several dozen hours in which you're going to be together, and this is not a part of it. So keep it in balance. At the same time, if you're a person, let's say you're a young person on this campus, you're a disciple of Jesus, and so you and your loved one have, have made a decision that doesn't get made nearly as often as it used to or should. But you've made a decision, we're going to wait until marriage to be sexually deeply involved. Let's say that's your decision. And let's say you have no problem fulfilling that decision. That's a problem. That's a real problem. That should be a difficult decision to live out. Because if you have no problem keeping your hands off each other now, you're going to have a problem keeping your hands on each other later. Just remember the balance. That's what we're driving at here. And then finally, Sternberg says, the foundation of the triangle is what he calls commitment. 
And I believe it's very, a very strong argument to say that agape, that word in the New Testament that in English gets translated love, is a great reflection of that kind of commitment. It's another centered kind of love that is willing to make sacrifices, that is willing not to take everything personally, that is willing to persevere when others say give up, that is willing to forgive when you'd rather retaliate. That's commitment. That's agape love. And that's the foundation. Now notice, these two will rise and fall. They will ebb and flow. Life will do that to the best of marriages. Some weeks you're talking great. You feel very closely connected as friends. Other weeks it's like you're stepping on each other's last remaining nerve and just all these little flare-ups. That's life. It happens. The same happens in this area can be affected by all kinds of things, can be affected by illness, can be affected by pregnancy, can be affected by loss, by stress, by many other realities. These two can rise and fall, ebb and flow, but ultimately this one cannot rise and fall or ebb and flow or you destroy the relationship. So does it not stand to reason as you're moving toward marriage that you would be asking questions about things like this? That you would be trying to say a sound mind makes for a robust body, but runaway emotions corrode the bones. I don't want it to be just runaway emotions. I want to be thoughtful. Use the intellect God has given me as we assess this relationship together. Last bus stop, last proverb. This one, Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters. But one who has insight draws them out. The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, driving at the fact that there's a lot contained within us. There's a great deal there that's not going to be readily available on the surface. But the wise person, the one with insight, will draw that out. The same is true in a relationship of dating or courtship as you seek to draw out what is in the other's heart and life and experience. And friends, that takes time. That does not happen quickly. So we're talking here about measured progress. I would say in general terms, obviously there are exceptions to this, but in general terms, time is your friend. I've on occasion been approached by a couple where one is really trying to push her forward, is in a hurry, and the other is saying, wait, 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 I'm not quite comfortable yet. That's a warning sign. Measured progress. How long do you take? Now, don't ask me how long Anita and I took because that's none of your business. <laughs> No, the truth is, we, our first date was right around Valentine's Day of one year, and we married end of April of the next year. That's fairly quick. But I would still, in fact, do you know that Anita and I did not do premarital counseling? Did not do that. And that's part of why I believe in it so deeply now. <laughs> we did postmarital counseling, probably within six months of getting married. We got into a counseling relationship and we're in it for an extended period of time. I was trying to teach her, and the counselor and she were changing me, <laughs> which is what needed to be changed. Measured progress. It takes time. I remember when I was leading grief recovery groups up at the medical center, 
one of our afternoon groups, our afternoon groups were usually made up of an older population who didn't want to get out at night. So in one of these groups was a woman named Ruby, a precious woman. Lost her husband, was really struggling. So Anita and I, you remember Ruby? Anita and I went and saw her on different occasions, visited her, and tried to console her and encourage her along the way. And then one day she called me. She said, Randy, I met a man. I was like, wow, really, Ruby? She said, yeah. Well, that's great. I, you know, hope it goes well. Take your time, get to know him, and so forth. She called me a couple of days later. She said, Randy, we're getting married. I said, you What? You're getting married. What are you talking about? You just met him. She said, Randy, I'm 85. <laughs> I said, okay, Ruby, I got you. <laughs> but generally speaking, grow over time. Now, what might that look like? I want to just share with you very briefly a model developed by a psychologist named John Van Epp. He calls, whoops, John Van Epp. He calls it the RAM model, RAM relationship attachment model. Uh, he talks about it in this theologically titled book that I shared with you before, How to Avoid Marrying a Jerk. <laughs> it's worth reading. Um, he talks about it here, and he talks about it as five sliders on a soundboard. Now, when I use the term sliding here, this is different from Scott Stanley's sliding versus deciding. This is just an illustration. So David Christensen is on our soundboard upstairs, and he's using the sliders to raise and to lower the sound. So that's the model you want to look at. So Van Epps says you have five sliders. The first one that you need to be pushing up as soon as you can as you're getting into a relationship, and this one you continue to push higher is one that he calls no, no, K-N-O-W, no, getting to know the person. Conversation, questions, sharing of life, experiences, getting to know them, how they would react to different things, what they believe, how they feel about certain realities, what their life history is, their family, getting to know them. He says that's the most important slider with which to begin. It needs to continually be pushed upward. No. Second slider, he says, is trust. Trust. It's quite amazing. How many people, bright, articulate, intelligent people, will pe place trust in someone they hardly know? It's amazing how we somehow shift from, from knowing these things in our professional life and making these unwise decisions in our personal life. So what Van Epps' argument is, you have to know the person before you begin to place trust in the person. Always keep the knowing ahead of the trusting. But the trusting needs to grow. You need to begin to slide the slider further and further up. And the way you can do that is when you see trustworthy behavior. Trustworthy behavior elicits trust, but it takes time to see trustworthy behavior. Again, we're talking about measured progress here, drawing out the insights of the heart and soul, as the proverb said. So you know and then you trust. The third slider, says Van Epp, is one that he calls rely, rely. I come to rely on that person. Now, we're not talking really here about relying on them when they say, I'll meet you at 5 o'clock, although that is an important reality. 
to know. But that's not the reliance that we're talking about here. What Van Epp is talking about is a reliance that says, I know this person well enough, I trust them deeply enough, that I can rely on them to be there in the realities, the difficult moments, the alarm moments of my life. I can rely on them, trust my emotional life, my quandaries, my questions with them. I can rely on them. They're not going to make fun of me. They're not going to walk away from me. I can rely on them to be in this relationship and be connected. Now, you know them. Because of that, you've come to trust them. Because of that, you've begun to rely on them. And now comes what Van Epp calls commit. Commit. Now you begin to more naturally commit to them. Because this is someone you know, you trust, you rely on, the commitment that we've talked about over here becomes a more natural outgrowth of that which you have already been experiencing. The commitment deepens. The commitment grows. You begin to decide about long-term permanent commitment. And then finally comes Van Epp's last slider, which he calls touch. Touch. And by touch, he means sexual touch. So notice, in a book written by a committed Christian, but written to a secular audience, Van Epp is trying to underline the fact that we as humans, in terms of the connections we make, the relationships we build, have a certain pattern that dramatically increases the likelihood of this being a healthy, long-term relationship. And the way that happens, says Van App, is you never let the slider to the right go higher than the one immediately to its left. You always know them better than you trust them. Trust them before you rely on them. Rely on them before you make a commitment. And make a commitment before you move to profound and intimate touch. It's biblical stuff. It ta- what was our proverb? The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. So what it's driving at is if you take your time with this person in whom you're interested, you can draw out realities which will let, let you get to know them deeply, to trust them, to rely, to commit, etc. That's what it's driving at. So here we are in the midst of a, of a series called Covenant. Lessons for families. We're asking about dating relationships. As I look out across this audience, I realize you're all at a dating age. (laughs) So you'll understand. That was supposed to be a joke. But anyway. But you know people who are dating. And some of you are, maybe more than we realize, because when we look at next week, when we look at the percentage of single people and how much it has grown, it's staggering. And we're asking, What is a wise way to assess? Do I move from contract to covenant? Well, sound judgment, watch what they do more than listen to what they say. Mutual growth, do we make each other better? Honest lives, are we able to speak the truth to each other and grow together? Balanced emotions, are we willing and able to make whole life decisions? And finally, measured progress. Are we developing the relationship in the most emotionally, psychologically, relationally healthy way? So I have an assignment for you. If you're a single person, 
and you're getting to know someone, you're dating someone, you're courting someone, maybe even you're heading toward thinking seriously about marriage, here's what I'd like to ask if you would do this week. Take some time to assess. I'm not saying this is the only way to assess, but it might be a helpful way to assess. Take some time to assess your relationship. Be brutally honest, because if you're not brutally honest now, I'll guarantee you after marriage, you will be brutally honest. Better to do it now about where your relationship stands and where it can grow. That's if you're single, if you're dating. And if you're a married person, I have an assignment for you. I want you to address this particular part of Van Epp's model, the knowing part. What I'd like to ask you to do is go home with your beloved and ask them to share something deep in their soul, some desire, some yearning, some hope that they've never shared with you before. I'm not talking about deep, deep dark past secrets. That's not what I'm driving at. I'm driving at something that is meaningful to you and that you wish for, but you've just never had the courage to articulate. Ask your beloved to share that with you. You know what the truth is? The truth is that Jesus loves you, Jesus loves me with an everlasting love. Jesus loves that person in whom you're interested or to whom you are married with an everlasting love. And he desires our relationships to be deep and meaningful and healthy. That's why we have things like the Proverbs that give us wisdom for living. So go home under his grace, through his spirit, and with his mercy. Assess, ask, listen, and enjoy the ride. Gracious God, thank you. From the bottom of our hearts and souls, thank you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at LLUC.org.